following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right, let's open our Bibles to the book of Haggai. If you don't know where that's at, go to the book of Matthew, New Testament. Go to Malachi, left, go Malachi, Zechariah, you'll find Haggai. Two <clears throat> very short chapters uh, we're going to be in this morning. Uh, let me just say, Luis, thank you for preaching to us last week. Fantastic job. Uh, if you weren't here and you uh, would like to hear a message on the importance of words, uh, that would be a sermon to get and just put in your podcast. <clears throat> Listen to it. It's a fantastic one that would help you, uh, that would encourage you. All right. Uh, my name is Dave York. I'm the senior pastor here. If you're new, thanks for being with us. Uh, you should have got a like a bulletin when you walked in the door. On the back side of the bulletin has an outline. That'll tell you how long-winded I will be. Okay, so you just keep up with us. Uh, <clears throat> the challenge with preaching on a book that has two chapters is everybody thinks, great, it'll be a short sermon. Um, that will not be the case. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, but at the same time, we we do believe here that we preach sermons that are ex- expositionally correct. And when you take two chapters, they're remarkably challenging to put into context. So that's where we're going to be this morning. We've been studying the minor prophets. Uh, we're going to end this series on December the 11th with our last look at the book of Malachi. But what we've been looking at so far has been prophets speaking to God's people prior to their exile. And today, and last week we looked at, a, or two weeks ago, we looked at a prophet that was in exile But today we're going to look at a prophet who has returned from exile. Now, if you remember in our study, if you've been with us, throughout Israel's history, they were a nation who had an on-again, off-again relationship with God, who delivered them out out of Egypt, who brought them into the promised land. There were times when they put the things of God as a priority in their life, and there were times they were idolatrous, greedy, and self-serving. We've also looked at these prophets as kind of like, um, like lawyers, bringing accusations against the people of God, reminding them <clears throat> that God said if they, don't, if they don't turn, that they're going to be exiled from their land. It was a promise of God that he made in the, in the book of Deuteronomy. And what we've studied in this time of the Old Testament prophets, we've studied a little over 200 years of their history. So we've taken some time and we've seen a lot of their history. And as I said, two weeks ago, we looked at Zephaniah, who prophesied about the coming Babylonian exile that happened in 586 B.C. to the people of Judah. But today we're going to study the prophet Haggai, who was a part of the first group of people who returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. Now, to understand the book of Haggai a little bit, you've got to know a little bit of your Bible. So we're going to talk about one particular place, in particular the book of Ezra, because when Haggai went back into Jerusalem, he was led by Nehemiah, uh, Ezra, and a guy that we're going to talk about today named Zerubbabel. And about 50,000 people left Persia because the king of Persia said, whoever wants to go back and rebuild the temple, go. And he took them back. So in, in Ezra chapter 1, you're going to notice a, a fan, an, an intriguing uh, word that came, to the, came from the Lord to the king of Persia, who actually told him to send people back to go rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this was in 538 B.C. Now, if you're doing your math here, it's a little over 50 years since they've been in Assyria, and I mean Babylon and Persia, and the king of Persia now is sending a group of people back to go rebuild the temple, and anybody willing to go back goes, and about 50,000 people go back, and when they return, 
In 538 B.C., they begin to rebuild their lives, rebuild the temple on the very same site that the temple was destroyed. A few years after they start the building of the temple, though, problems happen. A group of enemies rise up from the surrounding lands and discourage them and try to stop them. And the enemies in Ezra chapter 4 wrote a letter to now the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, basically falsely accusing the Jews and appealing to this king to stop the work of the temple rebuild in Jerusalem. And he calls Jerusalem that rebellious and wicked city. The king then replies to this appeal, writes him back and says, yes, the work should stop. And at that point, the work stops. And the people begin, of all the 50,000 returned, had now begun to rebuild everything except the temple. So they rebuild their houses, they, they go to work, they earn a living, and they move on. All the while, this temple that has been destroyed and partially rebuilt is laying before them. Now that's where we are in Israel's history. The time is probably, oh, I don't know, um, 530 B.C., um, you know, around this time, there's a, there's a, there's a gap of time we're going to talk about here in a moment. Okay. Now, you may not think that that stuff matters to you, but let me tell you why you need the book of Haggai. Okay. Have you ever forgotten how important the things of God are in your life? Let me just give you some ideas about this. Parents, and I'm a parent, so I know this pressure. And I've lived through this pressure. That you hear from the culture that the only way to get your children uh, future opportunities in collegiate sports or collegiate music or arts or entertainment is you got to get them involved in every activity possible. And if you get them involved in every activity, they're going to get exposed and people are going to see them and they're going to get opportunities for college scholarships. And slowly you pursue all of these activities for your children, but then in the backdrop you leave something behind. You leave kingdom priorities behind. And all of a sudden, you know, Sunday gathering at the church isn't a big deal because we got to get to a sporting event. Uh, getting around people for the fellowship of the gospel and being able to share the gospel, living the gospel together in community doesn't matter nearly as much as our kids getting their collegiate opportunities or whatever it may be. We all feel that pressure. But what about financial pressures, financial challenges, financial successes? Have you ever forgotten the priority of financially giving the money that God has given you back to God first Or do you think, like many do, is the money I have, money I've earned, it's my money, and after I see that all my needs and wants are met, then I will give to the things of God when God tells me to do so. Is that how you think of things? And we just leave kingdom priorities of our money behind, or better yet, our time. All of us feel the pressure, don't we, of of the pressure of time, thinking that we never have enough time, Right, Starting our day off or giving some portion of our day to just spend some time with the Lord, dedicating our hearts and our lives before the Lord in just some moment of time. But I know what happens in the busyness of life. Matter of fact, it's kind of a cultural thing now to show how we've arrived by telling people when they greet us, hey, how are you doing? We just say, man, busy, man, crazy busy. And that becomes our vernacular today rather than actually analyzing maybe our busyness is taking us away from kingdom priorities that God would have for us. Right? I heard a buddy of mine years ago said, if Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. But there's more in this book that I think is going to help us. Have you ever been discouraged by the enemies of the gospel and the enemies of Christianity telling you how Jesus and his word don't matter and aren't even real in this life anymore? 
think all of you are. I mean, I, I've talked to you several, several of you over the last few years, and the discouragement is real. Have you ever wondered if giving your life for Christ and his kingdom purposes are really worth it? Because you look at what everybody else who isn't in that category are doing, and you think, I want that, and what I have doesn't seem to match that. Is this all worth it? Or have you scrolled through, ever scrolled through social media, pondering how it seems that your life and your faith seem so little and insignificant, and you just wondered, does it really matter when when I'm small and this is small, and are we really going to have an impact in this world? See, this is why we need this book. And this is what we're going to learn this morning. It's in the big idea in your notes. And here's the hope that we will learn this this morning. It's this. God calls us, his people, to make his kingdom work a priority in our lives. When we do, God promises to be with us. He's building more than we could ever dream. Let me say it again. God calls us to make his kingdom a Kingdom work, a priority in our lives. When we do, God promises to be with us. He's building more than we could ever dream. Let's stand together. We're going to read the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. <clears throat> Is it time for... For you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may, I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain the new wine, the oil on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning that you can and do and you will speak to us through a book that was written almost 2,500 years ago. And thank you that your word is just alive today as it was then. And I pray this morning that you would exhort us and encourage us where necessary. But most importantly, that you would elevate the name of Jesus in our hearts and lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. You may be seated. Now, these two chapters, uh, Haggai 1 and 2, are only about a time frame of about three to four months. So God gave a word to Haggai and then... From that point on, it's about three to four months. It's not a very long time. And there are three messages in the book of Haggai 
to deliver to the people and to Zerubbabel, who was their leader. Now, you're going to notice something in the book. We'll talk about this briefly in the book. But this book is unique because when the word of God is preached to the people, as we've seen in previous prophets, they would hear the word of the Lord and they just disregarded it. But not these people. They heard the word of the Lord and they responded. And even we're going to see some things in history that shows their response. So we're going to look at the first point in our outline. We're going to look at the we're going to look at messages, the, the first message and the third message from Haggai. And we're going to summarize it in a, in a little phrase, consider our ways. The first message of Haggai is found in the passage that we just read. It can be summarized in Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. Now, earlier, I pointed to you to Ezra chapter 4. Now, what's intriguing is, from the end of Ezra chapter 4 to the beginning of Ezra chapter 5, there's a gap of 16 years. So when you're reading your Bible, it feels like things are just moving at a rapid pace, and they're not. So at the end of Ezra 4, the end of Ezra to the beginning of Ezra 5, when we're told that Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the Jews in Jerusalem, we have a gap of 16 years. So for 16 years, the temple of God has laid dormant, and there's work that is undone. It's it's just. It's just a bunch of shambles. It's you got some bricks and things that are laid, and there's parts of the, the the foundation that are laid, but it's just laying bare for 16 years. Now, 16 years is a lot of time. I mean, just for a moment, consider how long 16 years is. March 21st, 2006, saw something happen in in our world that has since like transformed our world. The very first tweet on Twitter happened. 16 years ago. And nobody knew the name of Elon Musk at that time because he didn't show up on the radar on the Forbes 100 list of richest people in the world till around 2008 to 2010. 16 years ago, George W. Bush was still the president. And your pastor was 36 and did not have one stitch of gray hair. I mean, long, 16 years ago does a lot to the body. All right? I mean... Right? So for 16 years, 50,000 Jews who returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple in their city have seen loved ones die. They've seen families grow. They've had houses rebuilt. They've had businesses launched. A lot of time has passed. But now, after 16 years, Haggai shows up on the scene with a message from God. And it's basically this. It's time to get to work. Now, the challenge is... The people don't think it's time to get to work. And we're even told why they think it's not time to get to work. Because notice the irony in part of the text that we just read in chapters in, in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, and said, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Well, this house lies in ruins. See, the people were not ready to rebuild because the people were quite comfortable. They lived in nice homes. They were warm at night. They have good kids. They're enjoying a good rhythm to life. And in their minds, this simply means time has not yet come. We are fully at peace. We're fully comfortable. There's no reason to do anything different. And God's question to them is this. Is it right for you? To live in your cozy homes while God's house is lying in ruins. 
Or to put it in a vernacular I might use with my own children or others might use with me because they know that I like to get punched in the face a little more is how can you possibly live with yourself walking day by day by the unfinished work of God and yet go home and prop your feet up on a lazy boy? How does that happen? And the challenge of God from the prophet is consider your ways. In other words, take a long look at your life. Evaluate your priorities. And he repeats himself in verse 7 with the same phrase. Consider your ways. Meaning, listen, wake up. Consider it. Take a long look. Look in the mirror. What is going on in your life? Take a long look at yourself. That's fascinating how God, through the prophet, motivates these people. It's not like what you and I would do. You and I are basically going, get going. What's wrong with you? And we would motivate by some sort of, you know, external thing to go do particular things. But I want you to notice something that God does here. God motivates them through two ways. The first way he motivates them is easy to see. It's in verse 8. He says, go get wood, start rebuilding, so that God may take pleasure in it, and that he may be glorified. See, his first thing is it's honoring to the Lord and it glorifies God when his people obey him and do the work of his kingdom. It honors the Lord. And that's a primary motivation, meaning there's something intrinsic about this in Christian people that says there's a desire to follow the Lord, to honor God. God is glorified in us when we do what God has asked us to do with hearts toward God. That one's easy to see. That's a primary motivation. But there's a secondary motivation that is not as easy to see, but it's found in a principle form, and it's found in something that God speaks to them about their current situation. Here's the principle, and then we'll look at the verses that go with it. The principle is this. When God's people obey God, God takes care of them in ways that are amazing to them. When God's people obey Him, God takes care of them. God blesses them in ways that are amazing to them. Notice verse 6. God told them to consider their ways and about what was happening in their lives. And notice something. While they lived in paneled houses, they were still in want. They planted, but they got a small harvest. Their pockets seemed to be like had holes in them. You know, they'd bring money and they'd put it. It's like the money would fall through the hole in the bout on the, of the, of the, of the bag. They worked, but it came to little. They clothed themselves, but nobody was warm. Now what, what is he, why is this happening? Well, verses nine through eleven tell us why. It says, because the Lord blew it away. And he blew it away because he said, his house was in ruins while they busied themselves with their own houses. This could not be more convicting. See, there's an odd but true principle that we're going to show you. I'll show you here, and I'll also show you later in the New Testament. That's basically this. When we obey God for God's glory, God works with us in our work and provides for us. But when we disobey God for our own glory, God works against us in our work, and we will always be in need or in want. 
Now, again, these are God's people. These are not non-Christian people. These are what we'd call Christian people. And God is basically stirring them through the prophet Haggai to basically ask a very large question. Could your lack or your need or your desires for more be because you have neglected to rebuild the temple that God told you to rebuild? Could your lack be because you've made your own house a priority and not God's house as a priority? Consider your ways. Now, friends, you, there's so many applications to this. I mean, I, I'm going to give you a few. But there's a lot. I'll write on a few more tomorrow. But do you ever notice in your life how there's always a desire for more money? Or better yet, there always seems to be more month than there is money. Ever feel that pressure? You don't have to raise your hands, right? We all feel this pressure, especially the affluent world we live in. Let me just ask some probing questions that would come from this text. Could it possibly be? Could this be one sign from God that you thought that your money is for you and for your house and your priorities and your desires and your wants and not God's? Maybe you've treated money as if it's yours and not God's. And again, the odd yet true principle is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 9, when Paul is talking to the Corinthians about giving, and here's what he says about giving. The point is, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now I'm going to write about this more tomorrow, about principles of giving. But here's a basic principle of giving. When we give to God what is God's, God meets our needs in ways we could not imagine. When we give to God what is God's, God meets our needs in ways we cannot imagine. We all feel this with money. But what about time? Anybody ever feel like there's not enough time in the day and it feels like, man, why did God not give us a 36-hour day? Why a 24-hour day? Why do we always feel this pressure like there's never enough time? Now, I can remember a time in my life when I had to learn this lesson very well. I was a, I was 21 years old. I was a senior in college. And in order to finish my degree, I wanted to get done early. I took 21 credit hours. Doesn't seem like a big deal, except I was working full time as a youth pastor at a local church. I was working 50 to 60 hours a week. If you knew my work schedule, you'd think I was insane. And I was at the same time working hard to be a good student, get good grades, and I was swamped. And I remember talking to my pastor and friends and saying to them, I don't have time to breathe. I don't have time to spend time reading my Bible and praying and being alone with the Lord because i got to study theology and i got to study my Bible for teaching kids. I don't have time. To engage in a relationship with God every day. I just don't have time for this. And my pastor very delicately and very graciously just said these words to me. And it's a principle that I just gave you. It's basically this. Hey, David, give to God what is God's, which is time. And God will meet you in ways you cannot imagine. It became remarkably convicting. And so I began to just set my alarm at a different time. I got up a little earlier. I sacrificed some school study time to make sure I was watching my life and I was watching my teaching. 
And guess what happened? Time seemed to multiply, and I finished that semester with a 3.97 GPA. I don't know how that happened. I can't explain to you how time seemed to increase. I don't understand when I walked into my Christian doctrines class with very little of the study I thought I could do, that I remembered some of the theology that I've been taught in the class. What happened? God met me in ways that were beyond my imagination. See, the principle is motivating. And that's what God is doing with these people. He's not browbeating them. He's motivating them to see, serve for the glory of God, and God will meet you in ways that you cannot imagine. When God's people obey Him, He will take care of them. Give to God what is God's, and He will meet you in ways you cannot imagine. So here, here's a question for you. And it's driven from the text. Consider your ways. Where are you keeping from God what is God's? Where are God's priorities, not your priorities? And parents, just let me just drop this into your lap. Your priorities will become your children's priorities. Just being honest with you. You've got to give that thought. But let's jump down to the third message in Haggai. It's the same thing Consider your ways, but from a different angle. See, after the first message Haggai gave, the people jumped right into the work. It seems to be they got after it pretty good. But something's wrong, because in the beginning of chapter, uh, in the the middle of chapter 2, there's a third message that comes in. It's basically about the idea about serving or doing things with unclean hands. And it's culminated in chapter 2, verse 14, when God told Haggai that what the people offered him in their work was unclean. The people seemed to be working half-heartedly. Basically, it was like this. They got the message from God, and they basically said, okay, we'll just go get about doing the work. We're going to set our timer. We're going to make sure our budgets are right. going to make sure our calendars are set. We're going to get to work and do the work. But their hearts were not in the work. And the Lord's point in this rebuke was, yeah, you guys got to work, but you weren't devoted to me in your work. You were just doing the rote script of what I told you to do. And that was ceremoniously contaminated in God's eyes. In God's eyes, it was unclean. It was a stench in his nostrils because they were doing it half-heartedly. They weren't committed to truly getting it done for the glory of God. They're just doing it because God said to do it. And they also didn't want to lack anymore. But notice again how God goes after this. Notice how God targets it in verse 19. Is the seed yet in the barn? In other words, is the work done? Is everything gathered and that should be gathered? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day onward, I will bless you. See, what God says to them is, you set your heart to do this work. I I will get behind this. God once again motivates them by their lack to see the importance of finishing the work wholeheartedly. Again, the principle, God will bless his people as they obey him, and he will take care of their needs in ways that are beyond what they could imagine. There will be no lack in their needs as they prioritize God's kingdom in their life. You can see the principle. When God's people obey him, he will take care of them. Give to God what is God's, and he will meet you in ways you cannot imagine. So, so the, the question really 
hangs out over this, right? I mean, where is God's kingdom not the first priority in your life? Here's a spot you can check is, where do you see places in your life where you're always desiring more or you lack something? See, in our affluent culture, it's hard because we don't lack anything. We just want more, right? As I was driving in this morning, praying over this issue, I started thinking about a particular area where I've kind of been complaining to God, like, I I wish I had more of this. And it was like the Lord just used this sermon to say, you know, you want more of that. Because you haven't set the priorities of me in that. How about you set the priorities of me in that, and I don't think you're going to be lacking in wanting this. See, could God, one of the ways God's showing you that your priorities are out of whack is by showing you where you lack. Now, that's a good lead into our second point, which is don't be discouraged. You're going to see this in Haggai's second message, which is chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Now, just a brief history lesson here, that before the Babylonian invasion in 586, and then Judah being exiled to Babylon, the temple, the very first temple that Solomon built, was a thing of beauty. It was one of the world's wonders. People would come from all over the Middle East, all over the world, to see the riches and the wisdom of Solomon. It was a, a status symbol for the people of Israel. It represented the presence of God dwelling with his people on the earth. It was beautiful, decorated with gold and precious metals and and exotic woods from all over the Middle East. It housed the Ark of the Covenant, the tablets of the law of God, and was the place where Israel gathered for national and religious holidays. It was irreplaceable to their national identity and history as God's people. But then in 586, when the Babylonians came in, it is gone. It is raised to the ground, leveled to the ground because Judah had forgotten their God, pursued false idols, and they were self-serving. Now that is remarkably important to the history of chapter 2 in the book of Haggai. Now let me give you some just present day thoughts for some of us. There are many of you in this room, and I've talked to you about this often, that look, look at where we are right now as a nation, and you rue the day because you think, Back in the, and you name the day, things were not this way. And we will never get there again. The former glory is better than this glory. That's the, that's the thought in Haggai chapter 2, because some older folks who were present when they were exiled remembered that wonderful temple that was there. And they looked at that and they thought, there is no way that it can ever be rebuilt. Matter of fact, in chapter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, you'll notice what he says. Who among you were here? And you remember that temple. And can't you see older people waving their hand like, yeah, I was there. I was there. I, I went into that temple. I did some worship there. I went into the outer courts. I remember those days. And you can hear the prophet say, how do you see it now? It is nothing And that's what he says. Is it now nothing in your eyes? Now, for those of us who haven't been alive as long as some of our older folks who've experienced America and some of her greatness, right? It'd be similar to us right now living through the White House being destroyed. Or the moment, maybe for some of you, a few short years ago when January 6th happened and you saw people running through the Capitol building and thinking to yourself, how is this happening? 
What is going on here? Imagine those buildings being raised to the ground by a foreign enemy, and then we decide we're going to start building those things. The People's House, who housed presidents, guys like Lincoln and JFK and Reagan, the house where the leader of the free world lives with his family, the leader of the most powerful country on earth, gone. If it were to be destroyed, a piece of our history would go with it, and our identity as a nation would be would take a hit as well. Wouldn't you feel like your security had been breached in a way that you've never thought? To rebuild it would be necessary, but would it ever feel the same? That's the discouragement in Haggai chapter 2. It's real and it's understandable. But look at the Lord's message to these people to not be discouraged. Because it's a good reminder for us to keep in mind that God is at work. And the first message he gives them is in verses 4 and 5 when he says to them, don't be discouraged because God's with them. You see this in verses 4 and 5. It's a reminder that as God's people work with God's king, God, with kingdom priorities, God is present with them. Notice what he says. Work, for I am with you. My spirit remains in your midst. And this would have been really good news. Because 50 years ago when they were exiled and that temple was raised to the ground, it was a symbolic picture that God's spirit for that moment in season and history had left his people. Because of their sin. But now as they return by the miraculous hand of God through the mouth of Cyrus, the king of Persia, God was once again manifesting his presence uniquely with his people. And after 16 years of work stoppage on the temple, God is clear. Get to work because I'm with you. My spirit remains with you. Now, friends, let this settle in your soul for a moment as God's people. Yes, enemies of the gospel will stand against you, but the great I am is with you. Kings of this earth may try to stop the kingdom of God, but there is no stopping this God to build his kingdom because God's spirit resides within his people. Let that settle in your soul, living for God's priorities. God's people never have to be discouraged because God is with us. The king of the universe resides within us. But there's another encouragement that he gives them in verses 6 through 9. And it doesn't stop with, I'm with you. He goes on in verses 6 through 9 to say, don't be discouraged because you're building something far more significant than you realize. And notice how God told them this. He said he was shaking the heavens and the earth again, meaning he's doing something historically and universally important. And the earth's treasures will come in and he will fill that place, that temple with glory. This is this in verse 8 with the, the gold and the silver are mine is a reference to foreign nations' economies being used to rebuild that particular temple, which we'll get to in a moment. And this temple, this one they're rebuilding, like the first one, will have the glory of God residing within it. But notice verse 9. But the latter glory of this house meaning the later glory, down the road glory, will be greater than the former, the glory of the former house, and God will bring peace from this place. In other words, God told them to hold off on their discouragement and their frustration, be patient at the rebuilding of the temple, because they are, they are rebuilding something, and God is doing far more than they could ever realize. Now, just for a moment here, let's know what happened in the book. 
at the end of this book, the people of God got to work. And they finished the rebuilding of this temple in 516 B.C., just a few years later. But there's some important things about the finishing of this temple that I think that you should note that reveal to you Haggai chapter 2 has been fulfilled. In 37 B.C., a year after the Roman Empire became the leading empire in the world, at the directive of the Roman Empire, King Herod, who was a Roman leader, a Jewish Roman leader, used Roman wealth to renovate and finish out the completed work of that temple that was done in 516 B.C. It's interesting that when you look at the history of that temple, it was it started with Persian wealth, and it was completed with Roman wealth, and Jewish wealth didn't do anything about it. Because the treasuries of the earth came to complete that temple. But that's not the only thing that's astounding about this text and the fulfillment of this text, because we're told that the former glory will be better than the first glory, because the former glory reveals something to us about the fact that this temple that gets finished in 516 B.C. and gets renovated by Herod in 37 B.C. is the same temple that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, walked into. In other words, while the temple was the portrait of the presence of God with His people, Jesus Christ came as God incarnate to dwell with His people, which is exactly what we're told in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father. This temple that they rebuilt held a greater glory than the first Temple, because the first temple never had the privilege of having the Son of God walk into it, teach into it, cleanse it, pray over it, or be involved with it. The greater glory of this new temple would be greater than the first glory, because that temple is just simply a sign, a portrait, something pointing ahead of one to come, and his name is Jesus, who did come. See? In other words, while it's discouraging for the people who remembered the former glory of their first temple, and it was discouraging at their labors to rebuild it because it seemed so small, God was building something more than they could ever realize. And I wonder, I wonder, Christian, do you believe that? See, do you understand that? Do you believe that God is doing something far more than you could ever realize? See, I I am convinced this is why we do not prioritize kingdom work like we should. It's because it seems so small and insignificant, lacking influence, power, and cultural sway. And we think to ourselves, let's go do things that the culture thinks is right. But listen to what Jesus said about his kingdom. And you tell me if this isn't important. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. You know what he says about the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God begins small, seemingly insignificant, and over time it just continues to grow. And what his point is this. Do not get frustrated by what you see, by what you think you're building, because God is doing something far more than you could ever 
realize. Friends, you, you will never regret giving your life to kingdom priorities at the end of your life. You will never regret it. God is building something far more than we could ever dream. Here's what he is doing. He is calling men and women and children from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and from every race, background, and work, and every spot around this globe to be part of his family and to bring all things, all things, under the authority of King Jesus. He is building more than you could ever realize. Just process that for a moment as you think through. It's so small. Will we ever get back? That's not the question. The question is, what is God building? And it's far more than we could ever realize. So listen, as as we work, God is uniquely manifesting himself with his people as we serve him and obey him. As we work, his presence is with us. Jesus' spirit resides within us. As we obey him, there's a uniqueness to his manifest presence with his people and a sweet aroma for the glory of Christ. To some, it's the fragrance of life. To others, it's the fragrance of death. So Christian, listen, don't, don't be discouraged. Your God is, is doing far more than you could realize. And as you serve your God, listen, your God is with you. Now that leads us to our last and final point, which will not take us long if you're concerned. <clears throat> and it's this. The king will reign. This message is found at the, 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 at the end of the third message that God gave to Haggai. And in these verses, he speaks directly to a man named Zerubbabel, their governor, their leader. And he used the same language <clears throat> about shaking the heavens and the earth Meaning he's doing something historical and universal with this man Zerubbabel as he brings him back to Jerusalem. And he talked about destroying all the kingdoms of the earth and their strength. And then he said he would make Zerubbabel, really interesting, uh, like a signet ring because God had chosen him. And then the book ends. Torch stops. This seems so insignificant, like... Just a blip on the radar screen, but I assure you that it is not. And here's why. When Judah was exiled to Babylon, there's a man who was leading Judah at the time, and his name was Jeconiah, or Kaniah, and he was Zerubbabel's grandfather. And he was exiled, and he was the king. But notice what Jeremiah said about Kaniah, Zerubbabel's grandfather. As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hands of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. Basically what this prophecy is saying is, Kaniah, Zerubbabel's grandfather, was going to go into exile God no longer recognized in that moment the kingly line of David. It's as if all is lost. The good kings of this nation, Judah, seems to be gone. So when God brings them back, led by a man named Zerubbabel, who happens to be the grandfather of Jeconiah, God declares through Haggai that Zerubbabel would be like a signet ring. Place back on the hand of God, and it's God's way of saying 
that he is restoring to Judah the kingly line of David, the messianic line that they thought they had lost in the Babylonian captivity. And you go, what difference does that make? Here's what difference it makes. Because Zerubbabel, the man you're reading about, is one of the few men listed in both genealogies of Jesus. He's a forerunner to Christ, telling us something fascinating. That the people of Judah thought they had lost their line, and for 50 years they did not know where this line had gone. That God's people sin against his against God, temples being destroyed and then eventually rebuilt. Yet God was always protecting the reign of King Jesus. Always protecting that reign. Always had that reign in mind. Now just for a moment, just marvel at this thought. This is God's way of saying King Jesus will reign. You thought you lost it when you went to Babylon. You thought you lost it because you forgot your God. You thought you lost it when the temple went down in flames and you're trying to rebuild it. You thought you lost it as your futile attempts begin to rebuild this temple. But let me show you, Zerubbabel, that man, that, that one there, he's a signet ring on my right. He's the connection to your Messiah to come. I will do everything in my power to protect the line of the king. The king will reign because God will see to it. Dave Rubel read earlier, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. See, this king, this, this rubble king, this Jesus king was what was prophesied about in, in Genesis, pictured throughout Israel's sacrificial system, prophesied about in her kingly line, protected through Israel's sin and exile and return. And Jesus came as God incarnate, showing us there is nothing in that century or this century or the next century that will stop the king from reigning. Nothing. Give that some thought. Just give it some thought. If God could protect the kingly line through Israel's sin, through her exile, through her return, return, is it too hard for God to protect the kingly line of Jesus through COVID-19? Are you kidding me? Through a wonky election, a struggling economy, uncertain times, friends, the king will reign. The king will reign. And since the king will reign, and the king is currently reigning, and God will see that all things land at his feet, then why don't we right now make sure that kingdom priorities are our priorities? God calls us to make his kingdom work a priority in our lives. When we do, God promises to be with us. He is building more than we could ever dream. Let's pray. Father, you have adjusted us this morning. Um, I do pray. I, I just think of my own heart. I think of the things that you have been just stirring in me through the day about my own priorities or lack thereof of the kingdom of God in certain areas of my life. And I thank you for the conviction. I thank you for that for our people. I thank you for the exhortation. <clears throat> and Lord, wherever those areas are in us, whether it be in our parenting, whether it be in our view of cultural norms or 
uh, our view of money or time or our business or uh, the way we do our marriage, whether it's the way that we live in our singleness and we think, if I could just have this, I'd be happy. Wherever it is, Lord, would you just adjust us and help us to see where kingdom priorities are not first, where we are not seeking first the kingdom of God. And I thank you at the same time that what you've done today is not just adjusted us, you've given us hope. Jesus will reign, and he is reigning, and he is the king. I pray that you would adjust our priorities according to that news. And thank you that you know us. We don't do it perfectly, but he did. And thank you that you are you're nudging us and turning us. And in many cases, like it is for me, you're using a, a sledgehammer to get to my heart. And so we just... We want to submit to you today. Reveal to your people where there's lack or desire or need and help them to see where kingdom priorities are not first. And then help them to make the adjustment because the king will reign. And those are his priorities. And what's going to matter in the end is kingdom priorities. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.